Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is the 12th of April, 2022. We're at the 29th episode of my arc of lectures on diabetes. And while I promised to be um, making these um, programmed, reduced, to specific topic lecture series um, as brief as possible. And I was thinking more like maybe 10 lectures, which would still be on half hour circuit, still five hours of um, audio time, plus maybe a video lecture at the end. Uh, these have been going much longer than I had planned. And that's because there's been a lot of literature that I want to cover in my discussion of diabetes because it, it is such an important um, comorbidity in a huge constellation of human diseases, which lead to high morbidity and mortality, even at younger ages. Remember that diabetes is always associated um, with few exceptions with obesity. And I'm here, of course, I'm talking about T2D, type 2 diabetes, which is what we've been involved with now all these lectures. So it's going to be the 29th lecture. This is going to be the last of them. I'm going to do a video um, to do a synopsis. But before I do that, I'm going to start the next arc of lectures because I've been doing a lot of back research and writing these lectures. And I want to get into the new topic. And I won't spoil it by telling you what it's about. You'll learn about it next time you hear my audio. Uh, presentation. So let's now talk about diabetes in the penultimate lecture. Okay. So let's just do some recapping. You know, the diabetes associated with an increased risk of multiple types of diseases, including micro and micro and macrovascular comorbidities. The hyperglycemic condition which is associated with endothelial cells and therefore vascular smooth muscle contraction. That particular system is poised to respond to glucose because glucose uptake is what is fundamentally used in bioenergetics for that cellular system. Therefore, anything that works within the bloodstream or within the capillary bed that is linked to hyper or hypoglycemia is going to relate to the contraction and relaxation of those smooth muscle cells, which make up the vascular system, right? So high blood glucose causes an increase in reactive oxygen buildup. This is because of the rapid flux of glucose to pyruvate, pyruvate then through the PDH and the pyruvate carboxylase reactions, driving uh, acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetic acid biosynthesis respectively, running then through after the condensation, the TCA cycle, and building up rapidly increases in NADH and FADH2. Now, because muscular activity, even the smooth muscle cells, do not always stay in a constant state 
of contraction relaxation because the, the musculature is organized according to uh, biological demand. In the case of blood flow, it's volume. And so because of that, you don't always have a constant high level of bioenergetic requirement for ATP synthesis. And when you ebb and flow the increases in blood circulation, you're also bringing with you uh, molecular oxygen, right? As well as glucose and other nutrients. And of course, the host of uh, organic molecules that are in the, in the circulation. Now, what I'm trying to explain to you is that a buildup of glucose will then build up NADH and FADH2, which will slow down the electron transport chain sufficiently to prevent the complete reduction of O2 to water. And when this happens, you get reactive oxygen, okay? So um, there's a redox regulated transcription factor called NRF2. And it actually plays a very important role for what's known as the antioxidant response element mediated expression of, because it's a transcription factor, genes, which of course become transcribed, that are associated with antioxidant uh, profiling. So what it suggests is that this transcription factor in NERF2 regulates redox balance. And so there's a great deal of interest in looking at that particular axis, NRF2 transcription, and then that entire antioxidant response. And what it looks like is that smooth muscle cells in particular are very sensitive to hyperglycemia. Now here's a component of type 2 diabetes. Uh, type, type, type 1 would also fall under this, but we're concentrating on type 2 because of its linkage to obesity and because it's much more prominent than type 1, which is an uh, auto-inflammatory disease. Um, because this hyperglycemia often plays uh, only a biomarker role in many of the uh, pathophysiological considerations we see in diabetes, okay, the, the pathologies. Uh, but in this instance, it looks like glucose does play a very significant role. So uh, I wanted to bring that up, okay, because basically hyperglycemia will lead to vascular dysfunction, all right? So that's one thing I wanted to cover off. Now, Let's get back to uh, some other diseases associated with type 2 diabetes. I've been telling you now for at least four or five of these lectures that there's an association with the central nervous system and the morbidities of type 2 diabetes, particularly cognitive dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease. Now, we know this because, again, this is, these are clinical research studies. People who have type 2 diabetes are actually two to three-fold more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease earlier than those who do not have type 2 diabetes, okay? In fact, another way of looking at it is that somewhere over 80% of all diagnosed Alzheimer's disease patients have indeed type 2 diabetes. And of course, that means 
insulin resistance. Now we talked a lot about how the central nervous system does utilize insulin signaling. Now that and your standard skeletal muscle adipose, uh, skeletal muscle, uh, as well as of course, smooth muscle cell, uh, glucose dependent, uh, or excuse me, insulin dependent glucose uptake, right? Via that pathway of endosomal translocation of GLUT4. I told you in the central nervous system, insulin does bind to its receptor, but it works through those ins insulin response factors and insulin response factors, including the IRS one and two, and that you get downstream processing events due to insulin. And this has to do with intermediary metabolism, as well as including, I should say, lipid metabolism. Okay. So when you get a, a, a corruption in insulin signaling in the central nervous system, it has actually been associated in the classical AD phenotype of beta amyloid deposition, as well as the neurofibrillary tangles, which you find from the tau protein. So the pathology that is canonical for a traditional understanding of Alzheimer's disease is linked to type 2 diabetes. I just told you 80% of the people with Alzheimer's have T2D. So that's not necessarily a correlation, certainly not a causation. But now I'm telling you there's a linkage there with the A-beta protein. Now, it's been clear that there's much more involved with type 2 diabetes. And it might have to do with this micro and macro vasculature alteration of reactive oxygen production in the central nervous system. Not, and this would only be secondary um, to our understanding of what's going on with dyslipidemia, but it's a very important parameter in the central nervous system because it appears that diabetes is directly associated with cognitive decline, and that decline includes episodic memory loss, what's known as cognitive uh, consolidation, and of course, a corrupted motor neuron coordination, all of which continue to get more severe as you get the progression of AD, of Alzheimer's disease. So it appears that peripheral hyperinsulinemia and then associated IR, insulin resistance, is a general feature of this pathophysiology in Alzheimer's disease, particularly the cognitive um, disintegration. So we have to think about the cerebrospinal fluid and we have to associate that perhaps with insulin. And of course, we know that insulin is secreted from the pancreas, from the islet cells, the beta cells of the pancreas. So that means that insulin does indeed cross the blood-brain barrier. And this process itself is going to be mediated by some kind of carrier process. So insulin resistance has to do with transport of insulin across that blood-brain barrier, as well as the potential for insulin resistance at the level of signal transduction once it binds to its receptor. So hyperinsulinemia 
because of all the other aspects of dyslipidemia associated with type 2 diabetes leads to a degradation of that blood-brain barrier. We talked about this before. It has to do with aspects of ceramide production, but also sphingosine 1-phosphate and alterations in the permeability of the membrane linked to ceramide-mediated bulk membrane lipid raft transport. And we again, we covered this in the previous lecture, so I'm not going to detail it right here. So it looks like there's a major role for the movement of insulin from circulation across the barrier into the CSF and then ultimately leading to some kind of insulin resistance. Now in the brain, recall, insulin modulates the glucose transporter for, it does indeed do this. And so there is a regulation though in the neuron for metabolism rather than directly the only means of inducing glucose uptake. And because metabolism can be altered in either the glia or the neurons, and we're talking about uh, this being, again, directly implicated in memory deficits and cognitive decline and motor neuron deficiencies, it appears that this association with the insulin uptake is indeed directly related to the severity of Alzheimer's disease and also, I might add, prefrontal dementia. Now, insulin signaling, as we've mentioned in the past, has multiple roles in the central nervous system, but also recall in the astrocytes. We talked about the production of ketone bodies and the astrocytes after sphingomyelin degradation of the fatty acids running through the beta-oxidation pathway, leading to the production of acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate within the mitochondrion of the astrocyte, and then the translocation of those uh, ketone bodies into the neuron for bioenergetics as glucose levels uh, ebb and flow according to the lack of powerful response of insulin reception and then signal transduction to induce glucose uptake. So this is how you link dementia from Alzheimer's disease with insulin and with dyslipidemia. Remember that insulin plays a major role in the modulation of other enzymes and other systems in carbohydrate metabolism. One in particular is the glycogen synthase kinase 3-beta enzyme. So insulin receptor signaling working through phosphatidylinositol 4,5-bisphosphate 3-kinase. Remember, this is now lipid-mediated signal transduction. The PI, the phosphatidylinositol, is a lipid that is found in the plasma membrane of the neuron and other membranes, of course. And so that kinase, the PI45-bisphosphate-3 kinase, actually requires phosphatidylinositol for its activation. But what happens when that kinase is activated 
is that you turn on the protein kinase B AKT pathway. And recall that protein kinase B then phosphorylates the N-terminal region of the glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta. That then causes an inhibition of its activity. So an inhibition of that activity which could lead to a diminished ability to utilize glucose as the bioenergetic store. So multiple lines of therapeutics have been worked on to look at the, have been generated, I should say, to work on inactivation of the glucose synthase kinase 3 beta because it plays a role in what's known as long-term potentiation induction. And that's basically a um, readout or cellular correlate of effective memory. Again, multiple lines of therapeutics are prescribed uh, and many of them are supposedly working directly for improvement of cognition in Alzheimer's patients. Some of these are herbal medications. Some of these are stress-associated uh, amelioration cascade pathways and even exercise, which we've talked about previously. It's been suggested because exercise and stress are associated with this potential decrease in cognitive degeneration that the immune system plays a role. And indeed it does. You get altered inflammatory responses. And this has to do with inappropriate insulin signaling because of the production of reactive oxygen, then inducing eicosanoid production, finally turning on either from the glial cells, that includes the microglia, or the neurons themselves, or associated uh, astrocytes, the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, thus inducing an inflammatory response, which we know is, is associated with um, corrupted insulin signaling in the central nervous system as related to diabetes-related memory dysfunction. So cognitive impairment, then, through a mitochondrially-mediated apoptotic pathway and the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines of the interleukin-6 family, for example, is a major implication. And that's what people have been looking at now, only recently, I should say. Now, impaired hippocampal dependent, long-term potentiation and spatial memory has been associated with a phenotype in the DBDB mouse. Now, remember, that's a model for type 2 diabetes. The DB mouse has to do with leptin signaling, right? So leptin signaling is also corrupted in diabetes, and we covered this because of the leptin resistance associated with excessive amount of visceral fat. This has been studied to a significant degree in the animal model. But that doesn't mean, that does not mean 
that there isn't a correlation to humans because there is a correlation. Because what happens in this DB mouse, again, it's a mutant, but it's a mutant model for type 2 diabetes. What happens is you get hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia. So when you look at rats administered with an intracerebroventricular injection of a compound known as streptozotism, what you obtain is sporadic, and again, this is a road model, dementia-associated central insulin resistance and ultimately brain insulin deficiency because of the turnover. The mechanism of this T2D-induced cognitive impairment is not very clear because it's an animal model. But what seems to be associated is the peroxisome proliferator activated receptors. These are the PPARs. And there are multiple flavors of these receptors. It's the alpha, the gamma, and the delta. And they all, in, in, in turn, represent further subfamilies of what are all nuclear receptors. Big, huge nuclear receptor superfamily. All those receptors tend to regulate transcription of genes associated with lipid and glucose metabolism. So we're back to primary bioenergetics. Okay? And these have been well studied for type 2 diabetes. So the activation of PPAR receptors seems to exert some benefit to the CNS. In fact, it's been shown again in the rodent model of Alzheimer's disease that a particular PPAR gamma agonist known as rosiglitazone did enhance spatial working and what's known as reference memory in this animal model, while at the same time they observed a decrease in beta amyloid production in, in the central nervous system of this rodent. So clinical trials using this PPAR gamma agonist, again, this is rosiglitazone, has uh, pushed the, the research community into looking for whether or not this drugs like this that enhance PPAR gamma could improve cognition in AD patients. And this is, this is also uh, linked, I guess, I, I should say probably indirectly to the fact that cognition in the DBD B mice, those are the ones that, that have leptin signaling deficiencies, that are obese and have type 2 diabetes, that cognition in that rodent model seems to be linked to the expression of our old friend, BDNF, which is known as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. The reason I call it an old friend is because years ago, I worked on the epigenetics of the expression of that gene in a rat model uh, looking for depressogenic states. We could talk about that some other time. So the activation of PPAR delta is another uh, of that super family. It's something we need to keep in mind, something we need to think about because PPR delta is going to have unique reception, right? And that unique reception is going to be linked to um, central nervous system neuronal and microglial interactions, okay? So PPR delta 
um, when it is activated, has been shown to decrease the pro-inflammatory response and even the production of amyloid in a transgenic model. These are transgenic models where you're introducing activation transgenically now of that PPR delta transcription factor gene. Now, what that particular overexpression is doing in the brain relative to cognitive dysfunction and type 2 diabetes is not really well worked out, but it seems that PPR delta, when you look at the plenum of literature, does indeed, of course, play a role because it's a transcription factor in the transcription of a very important kinase. It's called integrin-linked kinase, or ILK. Now, ILK down regulation in a streptozoidism rat, which is, of course, a di uh, diabetes-induced, is correlated with a deficit in synaptic transmission and plasticity. And, of course, that's going to lead to dementia, right? This is in humans as well as in the animal models. Now, memory deficits, this is now far-flunged, but still the research falls into place, in fetal alcohol syndrome, a model in rats, that is, is also accompanied by a corruption in that ILK expression and activity. Remember, ILK is the integrin-linked kinase. So it appears to be uh, that the, the modulation of this activity appears to be upregulated in type 2 diabetic patients and as a corollary in the uh, insulin, leptin, resistant, induced mouse model, the DBDB double negative mouse. Okay. So I'm coming from a paper that looked at neuropro neuroprotective effects of a high affinity PPAR delta. You have to have high affinity, otherwise you're going to be inducing other PPAR transcription factors. They only wanted to look at the delta isoform. So very high affinity, high specificity, PPAR delta agonist. And this compound was just called GW0742. Uh, I do have some chemical information about that that we can deal with later if we get to it. But it has a specific role in hippocampal function in this um, diabetic mouse model. And so what they found out that PPAR delta activation which would be a direct linkage now, because this is where they studied it, in the mouse hippocampal dependent memory coordinates, as well as hippocampal LTP and, wait for it, alpha amino 3-hydroxy 5-methyl 4-isooxazalosome propionic acid receptor, also known as AMPR, function in the mouse model of the type 2 diabetic. And what they found is that this activation in this system, which had to do with hippocampal ATP and the AMP-R function, appeared to improve spatial memory. And this AMP-R-mediated synaptic transmission in the hippocampus of that diabetic mouse model. So that then links this therapeutic, this GW0742, 
to a type 2 diabetic induced cognitive dysfunction. Okay, because it looks like if we are able to turn up PPAR delta, we can decrease the amount of cognitive dysfunction. That's what I'm saying there. So I'm at the end of this talk today because I've already got 28 minutes, almost 29 minutes into it. And we haven't gotten into the AMP R and also a deeper discussion into LTP, which I want to cover because these are neuroscience. Uh, neuropsychiatric terminology, which I think will allow us to kind of finish off obesity, type 2 diabetes, diminished capacity, and the, again, the full plenum of morbidities associated with obesity and obesity as it derives Alzheimer's disease within a T2D involvement. Okay. And that's where I want to finish off. And so I'm going to actually have to have one more audio lecture. So this is the penultimate audio lecture. So there'll be one ultimate one. And I promise I will then finish uh, talking about diabetes because I want to start talking about another topic entirely. All right. So um, I'm going to stop here today uh, and maybe get the other lecture in later today or tomorrow for sure. This is uh, Dr. Daniel J. Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast productions. And it is again, the 12th day of April, 2022. And I bid you bye for now.